And then she killed me. I know I said I wanted something to happen to me, but it happened fast. I couldn't help it. I tried not to put my feet in front of each other. I tried to pull back. But I couldn't. I'd come all this way, and here I was on the precipice ready to jump. I know. Trust me, I know. You're like, are you out of your freaking mind? This is not normal. Get the fuck out of there. But I didn't want to. A shimmering light pulsated from above the spiral staircase. It surged with each of my footfalls, like my every step cast a spell. I could have farted glitter if I wanted to, which I have always wanted to. I'm making light because obviously I was having a freaking heart attack, and I pictured the boys across the street bouncing my bloody beating heart around the cord and slamming it through the hoop and watching it thud to the ground below over and over again, but I also felt electric. My body was like a Tesla coil. I saw one of those at Liberty Science Center in New Jersey once, and my skin prickled and goose-pimpled, and suddenly I was drenched with cold sweat, and it felt like electrical snakes were slithering up and down the inside of my whole body. And you're just going to have to take my word for it. My feet floated up from the floor, and I started slowly swirling up the spiral staircase. And as I circled up, I looked back at Kathleen, Dorothy, Renfield, whatever the fuck she was, and she was still down there watching me. Corkscrew slowly upward, crouched down on top of a busted air conditioning unit, smiling and eating a bag of I shit you not salt and vinegar potato chips. I could smell them, and I realized I was ravenous, ravishing, whatever, ravenous, so very, very hungry. And then I thought about Lucinda. I wanted to yell, Mom, 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 Mom. Not so much for her to come and get me, but for her to see. See, Mom! 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 See? But then I thought, she'll come looking for me. She will. They will come looking. And that is when I realized that I had told her I was spending the night at Marva's house and that I would probably just stay over until school on Monday morning. Because I was mad at her for making me clean up my room before meeting my destiny. And for being a liar and a fake But I hadn't told Marva, because I wasn't really planning on spending the night at her house. I just wanted to buy time for this whole thing with Kathleen IG416 to play itself out. And when it played out fine, I'd just go home and tell Lucinda that Marva and I had had a fight. Or something. So, Marva had no idea where I was. And Lucinda thought I was going to be at Marva's for the next 36 hours. Nobody was expecting me anywhere for almost two days. Fuck. I thought that. Fuck. And then I think my body came apart in chunks. I think. Because there is pain at certain points. But I'm still here. Is this thinking? Can you think without a brain? Am I a consciousness now? I don't read stuff about consciousnesses or whatever because it is an unknowable thing. And 
most of that is soft focus woo bullshit, let's be real, or like oxygen deprivation brain death hallucinations. Maybe that's what I am now. An hallucination. Maybe you are too. You can hear me, can't you? You're still here. I can feel your heart beating and your blood coursing through your veins and smell your blood like a penny on my tongue. Is this death? Is this what it's like? Because if so, I have questions. Anyway, she killed me. I think that's what happened. But I'm not entirely sure. It is only February 23rd, and lime green buds have already burst on the beech trees on the south side of the park. Lucinda runs. She notes daffodils poking up through the dirt at the base of the pines near the lake. They shouldn't be there. It's too soon. But then, she shouldn't be running. She's supposed to limit her physical exertion during an IVF cycle, so her hormones don't get screwed up and make her egg follicles explode or something. But she's going insane, sitting around waiting for her body to decide to cooperate with her plans for a second child. And getting flabby. And fighting with her first and so far only child, Lydia. She detours from the main road, up onto a hill. The tree-lined path provides a nice view and an excellent cardiovascular workout. She hears, what is that, a wood thrush? A thrasher? She doesn't really know anything about birds. Why pretend? She Googles and guesses like everybody else. She thinks about stopping and pulling out her phone to look it up, but she doesn't. She doesn't have time. Matt's showing is from two to four, and she needs to go home and shower and change. She wants to look nice. She would never have jogged this path a decade ago. Too risky. A woman alone moving by herself in a beautiful, secluded space? Never. But now she is invisible to men, owing to her advanced age and encroaching decrepitude. Mostly all men. Not all, she thinks, and smiles. But the smile fades quickly. She's too old to be a real woman now. Lydia reminded her of that fact just this morning. You're making me do this because you're jealous I have somewhere to go. Because I'm young. I'm young and you're old, she'd spat. And all because Lucinda had dared to ask her to clean her room up before spending the night at Marva's house. It's just as well she spent a few nights as somebody else's problem. Fifteen is a hard age, and they are having a very hard time. Lucinda coughs. The cough pulls her up short. No. No, no. It's just a cough. It's chilly out. The air is dry. She's running uphill, breathing heavily. Still, it doesn't sound quite right. Where will they go, she wonders. Lydia and Marva. To the library, she thinks, and smirks at the lie of it. She remembers where she went when she was 15. She went to other girls' houses and looked through their things and put on their makeup and rode bikes around the neighborhood. She kissed neighbor boys in their backyards and then ran home, the wormy feel of their wriggling tongues still in her mouth. She wonders if Lydia and Marva kiss. She's trying to be tolerant. It's 2018, after all. 
She coughs again. No. No, no, no. Judy had once called this cough her bark, but she grew out of it. It's just a cough. It's winter. It's nothing. A picture floats to the front of her mind. A sunset. A sunset she'd seen from the couch in Judy's office. What was it, ten years ago now? Yes. A decade ago. Good Lord. Yes, right before the subprime mortgage apocalypse 2008. She and Mitch had closed on the Brooklyn house, that's right. That was when a five-year-old Lydia still took Lucinda's face between her chubby palms at bedtime and kissed her on the forehead and told her she was the best mommy. Another cough. It was back. The bark was back. She remembers the long session with Judy in Chicago. Judy had opened the drapes and Lucinda had seen purple and peach on the horizon, glowing slashes of light across the sky as the sun dropped. She remembers the whole session, both sessions, vividly, because she'd talked nonstop but hadn't cried once. She hadn't even teared up, though she'd felt sad. Sad. She'd felt run over by a lawnmower. She'd gone back to Chicago for a few days after she'd been disinherited. That's right. What a joke, disinherited. Her parents had nothing of any value to deny her. But she had done the worst thing she could have done in her family. She had refused to keep secrets. She'd written it all down, the years of Southern Gothic carnage, and shared it with the world. They'd sent an email after a family friend had forwarded them an excerpt from her blog posts on Sliver. They had emailed her to say, you are no longer our child. They'd meant it to. She'd been suddenly untethered, in a way she couldn't quite grasp. She'd needed to find the rest of herself, to go back to the beginnings of what had seemed at the time a promising life. She needed to go back to Chicago. Mitch hadn't asked why she suddenly needed to put her work on hold and fly back to where she'd gone to college. He'd said it was fine. He had expressed a bit of annoyance at having to juggle Lydia's school drop-off and pick-up and meals and babysitting and morning and bedtime routines and laundry and possible medical or dental calamities, but otherwise it had been fine. She'd flown back on a Thursday morning. She'd checked into the Drake Hotel, gone down for a Bloody Mary in the lounge. Then she'd gotten on the Ravenswood to Lincoln Park and started walking leisurely up Sheffield Avenue. She'd passed her old dorm and the medical offices that had once been a blockbuster video. She'd passed the building on Diversity, where there'd been an outrageously expensive health food store she'd been too poor to afford during school. She'd turned onto Lincoln Avenue and strolled alone at her own pace, taking in Chicago's vastness and muscularity while reveling in its humility, pretty but not ostentatious, brusque and a little standoffish, but kind and welcoming. She'd lingered in front of the Schmeising's window, staring lustily at the trays of apricot strudel and ham and cheese croissants, the treats that had packed 10 pounds on her squat frame the summer between senior year and her first secretarial job in a law office. She'd come to Racine, but had decided to wait and walk on further to Belmont. She'd wanted to save Racine for later. 
save the best for last. Uncle Fun, the novelty store was still there on Belmont. Its windows still sported wind-up chattering teeth and Ronald Reagan fright masks and little curls of plastic dog shit. But the waterbed store was gone, no surprise there. The buy-here-bake-there pizza place, Urban Pie, was defunct as well. She'd always thought the name was a little gross, to be honest. Murphy's Hot Dogs was still there, good old Murphy's. But where was my Thai restaurant? With its flashing green lights that she'd ordered from every Sunday night. Where was Anna Maria's? The single nice restaurant for a mile. Where she'd eaten a plate of chicken francaise freshman year. Where was Gordon's Notions? Where was the contact lens place and the dentist's office and that... What was that? That clothing store for short men. Australian? Something like... Didgeridoo and you? Where was her neighborhood? And then she'd known. She'd been passing a row of steel and glass-fronted condos for an entire block. A full gym in the ground floor, and what appeared to be a separate parking structure across the street made of the same materials. She doubled back and passed the complex again, checking just to be sure. She'd realized, like a gunshot, that everything she had known had been, for the most part, devoured by progress. She'd felt her hands and cheeks go cold. But then, thankfully, Shuba's. On the corner of Belmont and Southport. Shuba's would never die. Could never. It served cold beer, hard liquor, and a killer plate of macaroni and cheese, all at a fair price. Darts and a pool table. All the requisite ingredients for a proper Midwestern American bar and grill. She'd thought about breaking her rule and having a beer while it was still light out, or hell, maybe even a couple of fingers of whiskey and one of their huge crocks of gooey, crusty, four-cheese macaroni and cheese. But she decided against it. Not because she cared about propriety, but because she didn't want to hear it from Judy. Well, she didn't want to hear herself say it to Judy, actually. Fine. The truth of it was, she didn't want to be the woman showing up to her therapist's office reeking of Tullamore Dew and claiming she was fine. And also, though she'd gotten her body back after Lydia was born, it was harder to stay fit. And she wasn't there to torpedo her low-carb diet, no. She'd stood across the street from Shuba's, in front of what had once been a do-it-yourself stir-fry place, a humiliating dinner with a guy named Tim had popped to mind, that had been converted to a bank of Wells Fargo ATMs. She'd stared at her old haunt and imagined herself pushing through the dark oak door, broken black and white tiles under her feet in the vestibule, the waft of smoke and beer she passed into the long front room. She'd seen the blonde oak bar on the right, actually seen it in her mind's eye. The red leather booths to the left. Heard Ted Hawkins tuning his acoustic guitar on an upturned ice bucket in the basement. Maybe, she had thought, I'll settle in at the short end of the bar and nonchalantly toss a twenty onto the rail and then gaze alluringly out the window until he comes over. Terry until Terry comes over. Maybe he won't recognize me, she'd thought. But maybe he will see me, and a glint of recognition will spark in his light gray eyes. He might amble over, 
He actually did amble, if memory served, his barrel chest out proudly, a smirk at the corner of his pert-lipped red mouth. He'd lean his tattooed muscular arms against the rail, look down into my eyes, pour some Hendrix over eyes and top it with a splash of tonic just for me. Maybe he'll drop a lime into my glass and ask me how my spirit is today. Terry. Three years she'd wasted on a Terry. And he hadn't even broken up with her in person. He'd sent, of all things, an email, telling her he wished her peace, but they needed to part ways as friends. He'd sent an email, and they weren't friends. A bus rattled by at that moment. A gust of wind had blown grit into her eyes. The day she'd read that email, a teeth-shatteringly cold Chicago winter morning flashed in her mind. It was a Monday, the day of the settlement conference on a case she'd been working on for the previous year. She and Terry had had a rather heated argument about Monica Lewinsky, of all people, the Friday before. He'd been of the mind that it was no big deal, blowjobs or handjobs or frotage, his term. He'd said it over and over, frotage, frotage, impressed with himself, and had said it was kind of hot, actually. She'd said it was disgusting, penetrating a woman half your age on a desk, in the Oval Office, for fuck's sake, with a cigar. And he'd said, she probably thought it was hot, and then added glibly, more like a third your age, and then they'd had one of their alcohol-fueled arguments. This one had ended with him kicking her out of his apartment on Grand Avenue at four in the morning, rather than screwing her and passing out on his mattress. She didn't remember how she'd gotten home. She'd woken up on Sunday night at 8.45, ordered Chinese food, and sat in her recliner wrapped in a blanket, watching an officer and a gentleman on VHS for the 40th or so time. Anyway, she'd stopped at the Au Bon Pain for muffins and bagels for the nine o'clock settlement conference. She was viciously hungover, reeking and shaky, and the mix of cinnamon and Asiago cheese wafting up from the bags was making her want to vomit, even as she'd read his email, excited, quaking a little at just his name appearing in the from column right there in her actual life. She'd imagined an apology. He was too sheepish to call or show up. He wanted to dip his toe in the shallow end of decency, maybe. Whatever it was, it was a surprise. And he'd never bothered to surprise her before, so she'd felt like it was a step toward legitimacy, maybe. She'd eagerly clicked on the email and read, then abruptly rolled her chair away from her desk and faced the wall, her eyes squeezed shut. He'd never sent her an email. She didn't even know he knew how to use email and didn't recall ever giving him her email address. He was a bartender, and it was the late 90s. You called and left a message on an answering machine. You didn't email unless you wanted to schedule a meeting or send some stupid e-card or transmit the particulars of a settlement conference. Settlement conference, fuck. She awkwardly kicked off her shitty thrift store snow boots, the drawstring closure around her calf, trapping her foot, forcing her to kick her leg up and down to free it until her skirt was hiked up around her thighs. She looked down at her beige silk long johns, now with the large run opening up before her eyes all the way from mid-thigh to ankle. She cursed loudly and retrieved her aerosols from the bottom drawer of her file cabinet. 
She ripped off the ruined long johns and stuffed them down in the trash, slipped on her high heels and stumbled awkwardly down the hallway to the kitchen. She dug out the coffee urn, a pile of sugar packets and a canister of cremora, scooped 16 full scoops of Folgers into the coffee urn, poured in a gallon of water and plugged it in. She put the baked goods, along with plenty of napkins and paper plates, on a tray, arranged everything in the middle of the conference room table, and went into the back stairwell to chain smoke. She understood. She wasn't stupid. They weren't a couple. They were not seeing each other. He didn't owe her what one owed a legitimate lover. He had flipped on the light, that's all. That's what bartenders did to clear out a room. She smoked and considered all the time she and Terry had spent drinking and screwing around and talking. She'd been so hopeful, seeing all of that time as the beginning of something, maybe adding up to something, building the foundation, then making the home. So what if they drank and fought constantly? If she was just patient, if she could just be emotionally durable enough to match his coldness and carelessness with niceness and availability, surely there would be some reward. But he clearly hadn't seen things that way. At least, according to his motherfucking email. She'd sucked in the last of the cigarette, watched the floaters dance in front of her eyes as she pressed on them, hard, trying to make time fast forward past a sudden deep shame and shock. She was not stupid. Literally not stupid. She'd been the salutatorian of her high school class, had a 1400 on her SAT, a 33 on her ACT. Not that it mattered the tiniest bit now. Why was she so naive about basic human behavior? Why was she so easy to disappoint? Credulous. So hard to drive away, so accommodating and blithe and constant advantage-taking. He'd once referred to her feelings for him, feelings she'd expressed out loud as they'd had sex, as her unique love. Unique? Fucking unique, how? How was wanting to go see bands or get coffee in the afternoon with the man you were fucking unique? How is it unique to want the person you drank sangria with and ate tapas with and who fucked you to toe-curling orgasms every weekend for almost three years to acknowledge your existence? To himself, even. Never mind his circle of friends and God for fucking bid his family. Three years of anonymity. And nothing to show for it but an email. Suddenly staring at her sensible pumps under fluorescent lights, she'd finally understood. Charitably unique meant misguided. Plainly, it really meant deluded. Actually, unique meant easy. Maybe even, and this made her stomach drop, strange. She saw it so clearly. Any woman with a shred of self-respect would have hurled that dead dog relationship into a dumpster at the six-month mark maybe even four, and certainly long before Josie. How had she missed it? How had she not seen the larger plan? He'd actually started the dumping two months before the email by inviting his co-worker from the bar, a whip-thin, child-voiced, sprite-type named Josie, to what would be their final meal out in public together. Lucinda had slept over, as usual, on a Friday night, awakened around lunchtime on Saturday, and had enjoyed two red eyes in the shower. 
She'd shaved with his razor, silky mounds of his Barbasol shave cream in her palms, on her legs, luxuriating, listening to bitches brew waft in from the kitchen. She'd been gloriously debauched and had felt entirely alive. When she'd emerged an hour later, he'd suggested tapas and put his hands on her upper arms. He'd caressed them and traced small circles with his thumbs along her clavicles. She was immediately wet, tingling, open. He'd teased her, chastely kissed her forehead and gone himself to shower and dress. She'd opened a beer, picked up a back issue of Granta and read it with her feet up on his battered steamer trunk coffee table. A light breeze blew in from the oversized windows of his crumbling old industrial loft, caressing her knees and thighs. She'd put her head back, closed her eyes. He'd emerged from the bathroom a while later, naked, and knelt down in front of her to part her knees with his head, her thighs with his tongue. A few hours later, after a fuck and a couple of espressos, a cab honked outside. Josie was, curiously, waiting inside the cab in the back seat. She'd waved at them, smiling effusively, baring her perfect teeth. Terry had said nothing. He'd just pushed Lucinda's head down, pushed her into the back seat, and scooted her over into the middle between him and Josie. He'd ignored her the whole ride, talked Josie over her, and had continued to ignore her all evening, gracing Josie with his undivided attention, his arms folded behind his head, legs spread, rocked back in his chair. She'd imagined upending the molten crock of hot goat cheese and tomato sauce that sat untouched in the middle of the table into his crotch. Instead, she'd sullenly eaten the whole crock herself, along with the accompanying baguette, sucked down an entire pitcher of sangria and said nothing. Literally not a word. She'd physically attacked him hours later, after a disastrous attempt at a 4 a.m. hate fuck. The police were called. He'd sent them away, laughing. He was actually laughing. Suddenly she was retching up bile and spitting it on the concrete floor of the stairwell. She stored the thoughts in the Terry vault in her mind, put out her third smoke under her heel. By the time she made it back inside to greet opposing counsel for the settlement conference, Paul, her boss, was in the conference room, slicing a blueberry muffin into quarters and smiling, sipping black coffee, and chatting with a tall, broad-chested young attorney who had, she noted, two rows of perfect white teeth. Why were everyone else's teeth perfect and white? She'd asked if they needed anything, and Paul, her boss, had said with his maddening sincerity, nope, perfect, as usual, loose. He'd stealthily handed her a tin of Altoids and then said, have you met Tim? Tim Gimble. Tim, this is Lucinda, my ace in the hole. A horn had blared, had shocked her back into herself. Standing in front of the bank of Wells Fargo ATMs, across from the scene of an almost three-year-long crime, she had looked up. The fluorescent U in Shubas was out. It read Shabuzz. Shabuzz she'd mouthed, and decided against the drink, against everything. She just wanted to go look at her house. 
One last look before she saw Judy and went home to her life in New York City, in Brooklyn, with her husband, sweet Mitch, and her five-year-old daughter, Lydia. Lydia Felidia. Lydia Lou. And that's when she'd barked for the very first time, in front of Shabazz, a small dry bark, an actual roof, if memory served, maybe more like an arf. She'd looked around, embarrassed. No, she'd thought, I do not bark. I did not fly all the way back to Chicago to lose my very last marble. No, <laughs> she'd laughed. Ridiculous, totally ridiculous. She'd hurriedly begun walking back down Belmont to Racine, toward the house she'd lived in in college. The house she had loved. A first love of sorts. A house which felt strangely in her memory, like the house she'd grown up in, though it was actually a thousand miles from that abattoir. Her house had been the whole reason she'd taken this route to see Judy, actually, who lived further east. Well, to see the house. And to flirt with the agony of Terry, too, if she were being completely honest with herself. She'd rushed through the sedate neighborhood in mild shock, eager to get to the house, eager to be calmed. The neighborhood was shinier than she'd remembered. Manicured gardens in front of luxury apartment buildings, where three flats had once been, where wood-framed houses had stood for decades. A famous sports writer had lived across the street from her and her roommates, and she wondered if he was still alive, if his trim slate gray house with white columns and a porch swing still stood across from the modest little wood job with a chain-link fence they'd lived in. His had been the only stately residence on any of the surrounding blocks. The apartment buildings had all been practical, but roomy and humane. The houses, middle class and reasonable, enough space for kids and pets running in the yards. Neither kind of dwelling had been the kind of relentless expression of self and wealth and dominance of all these aspirational brick tombs that now lined seemingly every street. The sidewalks had all been repaired, though, which was nice. They'd been almost rubble in some places when she was in college. Cracked and rotted by standing water, dank and vegetal puddles collecting here and there in the summers. The once spindly... Young green ash trees now arced gracefully over streets that seemed grander, owing to the pompous scale of the newly constructed dwellings abutting them. The tree branches, once skinny and pre-adolescent, now stretched languidly outward, showing themselves without care, without the weight of inaction or the burden of doubt. And suddenly she was standing on the corner where the two houses had stood, hers and the sports riders, her house and his house. Yes, this was it. This was the right corner. She'd stopped, looked, turned around, and around, turned in a complete circle, actually, her heart starting to beat faster, anticipating. But then a light clicked on. Neither house was there. They'd been torn down. In her little house's place was an unremarkable brown brick thing with a bulbous picture window jutting out over the sidewalk, like a beer belly over a belt. There were insipid gray steps leading to a frosted glass door framed by thick wrought iron railings. Bronze urns flanked the front door. A ridiculous lion's head door knocker stared 
dead-eyed, down into her face. She'd stood there gaping in front of where the first house she'd lived, where there was no yelling or shame or constant grievance had stood. A humble little house, where she'd gotten to put up her own things and sleep soundly for long stretches and plant flowers in the window boxes. There were no window boxes. And she'd started barking again, barked like a dog. For the second time that day. That's right. Lucinda remembers as she runs and barks anew in Prospect Park 10 years later. That's right, she'd barked again. She'd barked for blocks, odd, hoarse sounds, blundering up her esophagus and out of her mouth. She started fast walking, then trotting, then running. She'd raced up and down the surrounding blocks, frantically, block after block, finally circling back to the familiar corner again. The realization dawning that the little house was gone for good. She looked down at some purple grape hyacinths bordering the small front yard. Big house, little yard. When she'd lived there, the yard had been appropriate. A concrete patio edged by morning glories, climbing up a rusty chain link fence. Weeds, but cheerful weeds, morning glories. Something that took over everything, but at least had the decency to be lovely. Her heart raced. She touched her toe to one of the perfect Lowe's garden center, undoubtedly, blooms, pushed it slightly back toward the house, then pressed her entire weight down, pulverizing it. She'd crushed the whole row into purple tatters and fled to Judy's house for her session. She'd rushed into the small little office at the back of Judy's townhouse, opened her mouth to talk, and instead had barked for a full minute, one desperate, chesty, phlegmy bark after another. Judy had offered her water, and waited patiently for her to stop. Lucinda had gone to the bathroom to pee, finish peeing, actually, as she now squirted pee slightly into her underpants with every cough, thanks to the magic of pushing a baby out of one's vagina five years prior. She'd stuffed a wad of toilet paper in her underwear and felt it between her legs, a damp, disgusting clump. She had emerged spent and sweating from the bathroom and looked at Judy, kind Judy, Judy, with whom she was never ashamed. Judy had said nothing, offered no comment or clarification on the bark, no wisdom. She just pointed to the couch and handed Lucinda a box of tissues. Judy had then opened the drapes and turned all the clocks to the wall. Lucinda had talked for two whole hours, her insides peeling in bloody strips. She spilled the whole story, her parents' email, the realization they were disowning her, disinheriting her. They were calling her a liar, saying she had made up the story to get a book deal out of her little online diary. Blog, she had screamed. It's called a blog, you hayseed morons, and I'm on staff at Sliver. Not that they'd know what that was. And then she was talking about Mitch, how she had loved him once, but maybe didn't know how to love anybody, really, had never learned. Her shame at trying so hard to get pregnant, then getting pregnant with Lydia, and yes, loving Lydia, desperately, but resenting her existence, resenting how no one had warned her that everything would change, and she might actually hate motherhood, because people certainly hated mothers, especially young women, young, free women. 
She talked about her shame at having no courage at all, really, save the single gesture toward her girlhood self, talking finally about being molested for years by her grandfather. And they were calling her a liar. When she was done talking, Judy had asked how she felt. She'd said, blankly, like I had a breakthrough. Judy had given her a long hug. Lucinda had paid her and clung to her like she would never see her again. She never had. The last time she'd called, the night before Lydia's 10th birthday, actually, the number had been disconnected. Why had she called? She can't remember. And now here they are. Lydia is 15, and they are having a very hard time. It would be nothing to look up Judy now. She could do it right now on her phone. Look up what bird that is. Look up Judy. All the facts are at her fingertips all the time now. Lucinda jogs past the lake in Prospect Park. She knows it was the bark. It was the bark that caused Judy to throw up in the drapes in her office 10 years ago. So Lucinda could see the sunset while she talked. She supposes she's barking now about the flowers and trees blooming so soon, the implications. She sees crushed hyacinths in her mind, feels ashamed at her lack of compassion for them, for all living things. She picks up her speed and passes the gazebo and then the little outcropping of some memorial she's never investigated. And that is where she sees them. Matt and Lizzie. And their little boy, Luca. And their new baby. Matt is leaning on the trunk of one of the park's squat little elms with the baby in an ergo carrier. There he is, up under the canopy of lush, quivering leaves. Watching Lizzie and Luca down at the water's edge. He's almost as tall as the tree's trunk. She knows it's him before she sees his face through a break in the canopy. His brown eyes, the color of smooth, oiled leather. His thick, wavy black hair. Roman knows. He draws her eye every time he's in her sphere. Which, if they are honest, is nearly every day. Except the weekends, of course. Except today. It's Saturday. She hadn't planned this. She hadn't planned to see him until later at his open house. During the week, when she sees him, he usually wears a white button-down shirt and jeans or a sweatshirt over a tee with sweatpants, sans underwear. He walks Luca to pre-K. She walks to the spruce juice to get her matcha smoothie at the same time. And she sees him. She sees him walking Luca to school and wearing the new baby. And it reminds her of when she brought Lydia to school and how it felt to finally breathe and let her facial muscles relax after depositing Lydia into her classroom. Then six fleeting hours of freedom... She doesn't ogle him. She's not a creep. She doesn't view him as a piece of meat. He usually talks to a client on the phone while strolling along. His voice, a genial baritone that finds a groove in her mind and rolls along it. As she follows him. She cares nothing for the particulars, the talk of cash offers and board approval and credits at closing. Only for the sounds coming from his mouth. Matt is married to a stunningly gorgeous woman, Lizzie. Hot is the word one would use. Matt's wife, hot Lizzie. Not attractive, no. No, 
Not the dignified sort of no-makeup and equipment button-down shirt beauty of double strollers and sitting crisscross applesauce at sing-alongs on Dean Street. No. Lizzie has perfect, poreless, light brown skin. No bronzer on her. Oh, no. A lush, silky curtain of highlighted black hair cascades, literally, across her shoulders. It cascades. It does. She wears a full face of makeup every day, at all hours, unabashedly, much of it frosted, glittery, and ostentatious. She looks like she could knock down a wall with her sculpted arms, possibly even just the upper part of them, which are the actual bane of Lucinda's existence owing to her agrarian southern roots, but particularly since she's been pumping herself full of hormones to facilitate number two. Lucinda looks like she should be pitching hay somewhere. Lucinda considers running back up into the trees, back up onto the path, away from the inevitability of passing Mike and Lizzie and Luca and their perfect, soft little new baby. She considers turning around and running in the opposite direction, but she can't. She wants a tiny little piece of him, even if he is with his family, even if he won't turn his head in her direction as she passes. He pulls her in. He is a cobweb she willingly walks into. She hears her feet, pop, 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 pop. She pumps her arms, sweats, stifles a bark. She will run past him, head up, and not look. She's running. She looks good running. She's seen video of her last half marathon. She thinks about the fight with Lydia earlier. She thinks about how little it is to ask that Lydia respect herself. Respect her things. Respect the space she has been lucky enough to have, to, to have the care, the freedom to become who she actually is rather than who she thinks she should be. She thinks of how much harder she works than Mitch, really, how much harder she will always have to work to stay half as attractive, to wield less power in general, and certainly less now than she once had, which wasn't very much. And then there they are, the three of them. No, wait, now four, four of them. Lizzie, like a blooming sunflower, matte, pensive, red lips in a pout, muscular, sweatered arms around the ergo. He's up under the little elm for some reason. Lucinda picks up her pace, her feet pounding the asphalt. She coughs. She coughs again. Suddenly she's coughing. Dry and strange sounding, that goddamn bark. And then she's barking louder and more uncontrollably barking. And her pocket vibrates. Ugh. She should have turned it off. But she could pull it out. Answer, be otherwise occupied when she passes them so she won't have to look and see him not looking back at her and with that she goes to check her phone she pulls it from her pocket and suddenly she's falling tripping over an untied shoelace or her own two feet and her phone goes flying out of her hands and she's watching the asphalt approaching faster and faster and that is when she hears it is it in her mind is it coming from the phone unmistakable mom 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 Oh, <laughs>